Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like onions, mules and stinginess. <laughs> oh, there's nothing quite like stinginess, is there? Um, being stingy with onions and mules, I think, would be an interesting podcast. Or we could look at books, hooks and crooks, looks, rooks and cooks. However, we will not be doing that today because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of laughter is in fact all about the Reformation, class differences, foreigners, poverty, politeness, awkwardness, the Tudor court, madness and breaking wind in front <laughs> of Queen Elizabeth I, mm. or that the history of heads is in fact all about regicide, politics, technology, ghost stories, wooden naval vessels, Anne Boleyn and Washington Irving. Oh, Get that? Yeah, I remember that one now. That was good, the Washington Irving. It's always Sleepy Hollow and Headless Horseman. Oh, that's it. Um, and Anne Boleyn was all about um, the French swordsman, expert swordsman who was brought across to execute her. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, you're probably wondering who's doing all this talking. The, the man not sitting opposite me because we are social distancing, he is the minute taker of history. He's the man who calls history to order, the man who approves the co-opting of events into the great historical timeline. He is chairman and secretary of the great AGM of the past. He's professor extraordinaire of early modern British history at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. What a beautiful introduction, so carefully crafted. And I was looking at my show notes uh, and discovered that I hadn't actually done one for you. However, the man not sitting opposite me, because we are social distancing in these grim days of lockdown. Well, let's just say if he were a meeting guru, and I think this encapsulates everything that you put in that long wordy sentence into one. Let's just say that he would be the productivity ninja himself, mm. the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. The productivity ninja uh, refers to a brilliant book that you should all be reading. Uh, but it also shows what a total anorak that I am, because I'm always reading these books about how to be a more productive person, how to deal with email and meetings, which leads us to our topic for today's episode, which is the history of meetings. Yes, so. I think it's one we wanted to do, um, certainly since COVID and all the, the way we work has changed and we all have to do online meetings. We've been 
very much part of history changing before our eyes and the way the way we work has fundamentally changed. So it's an appropriate topic to do uh, the history of meetings. James, I think it would actually fit into that series we did back in the spring. Um, which was all to do with loneliness and lockdown and the, the various other ways that our world has changed because of COVID. Um, so our meetings very much fits into our modern world. And you may suspect it's boring. It is definitely not boring. The history of meetings is absolutely fantastic. James, how do we go about it? Goodness me. Well, I must admit, I'm, uh, I feel that I'm an expert on meetings, an utter total expert. In fact, frankly, uh, in my day job, meetings are my entire life. Uh, I call them, I chair them, I sit in them. I'm a committee member on so many groups and boards that I know a good meeting when I see one. But having said that, I must admit that lockdown and Zoom has meant that I sometimes feel like one of those World War II fighter pilots. So I sort of strap into my chair at about 8am in the morning and about nine hours later I get up and I find myself feeling very much like Monty Python about meetings. Do you know this about Monty Python? That they would never sit down and have a formal meeting at all. John Cleese apparently could not stand meetings and as soon as anyone tried to sort of hold up an agenda or say anything, he would just walk out. I think that's more or less how we run Histories of the Unexpected, Sam. <laughs> so that's how I would run it, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. But yeah. academics, historically, um, are, you know, are a source of literary satire in meetings. And I remember the first institution where I worked many, many moons ago, which will main, remain completely um, nameless, um, used to have these termly departmental meetings where you would sit there for five hours once a term and bash through everything in a really pedantic way and then not meet again for another four months. Uh, and everything else would be done through subcommittee and it would be sort of knocked into this working group and everything. But actually, the, they cut meetings to a minimum. And if you check out campus novels, things like Malcolm Bradbury's History Man, Kingsley Amos's Lucky Jim, David Lodge's many, many novels, you will see the kinds of sort of, you know, of really comic and humorous takes on on the way in which academics in universities run their meetings. And one of my favourites, which I hope you will indulge me to share this with you, is from one of my favourite novels by Stephen Fry uh, called The Liar, which was published in 1991. And those of you who aren't a, haven't discovered the wonderful character of Donald Trefusis, who is this sort of fictitious uh, Don, uh, a philologist uh, at, uh, at Cambridge, uh, that Stephen Fry used to do this series of wireless essays on Ned Sheeran's Loose Ends programme. He then wrote him into this novel, and he's a real sort of maverick character. And there's this one chapter where they describe this brilliant meeting uh, where all the sort of... You've got the president of the college, uh, Clinton Lacey, you've got a professor of civil law there, and they're discussing all sorts of things, and they start discussing... Um, they st start discussing... Um, junior research fellowships and bi fellowships and the reduction of money for for the arts and humanities which you know is is something that we're seeing today um but there's a point where donald trefusis who's been absent from this meeting comes in and it reads trefusis stood in the doorway a cigarette dangling from his lips peering vaguely as if unsure whether this was the right room or the right meeting 
The sight of Menzies, whose colleague disapproving glare, seemed to reassure him. He entered and slid down into the seat next to Admiral Munro. "'Well, Donald, I'm sorry that you seem to have been delayed again,' said Clinton Lacey, who's the president of the college. Trefusis was silent. "'Nothing serious, I hope?' Trefusis smiled affably around the room. "'Nothing serious, I hope,' repeated the president. Trefusis became aware that he was being addressed, opened his jacket, switched off the Walkman that was attached to his belt, and slipped off his earphones. "'I'm sorry, Master, did you speak?' "'Well, yes, we were discussing the fall-off in resources for the arts.' "'The arts?' "'That's right now.' Menzies coughed and pushed the ashtray towards Trefusis. "'Thank you, Garth,' said Trefusis, flicking the ash from his cigarette and taking another puff, most thoughtful. The President persevered. "'We will not have enough money to create any more junior research fellows in the arts for at least two years.' "'Oh, how sad,' said Trefusis. "'You're not concerned for your department?' "'My department? "'My department is English, Master. "'Well, precisely. "'What has English to do with the arts, whatever they may be? "'I deal in an exact science, philology. "'My colleagues deal with an exact science, the analysis of literature. "'Oh, poppycock!' said Menzies. "'No, if anything, it's hardship,' said Trefusis. "'Really, Donald?' said the President. "'I'm sure there's no need.' Professor Trefusis, says Menzies, this is a minuted meeting of adults. If you feel you can't preserve the decencies of debate, then perhaps you should leave. My dear old Garth, said Trefusis, I can only say that you started it. The English language is an arsenal of weapons. If you're going to brandish them without checking to see whether or not they are loaded, you must expect for them to explode in your face from time to time. Poppycock means soft shit. From the Dutch, I need scarcely remind you, Papa Kake. Menzies purpled and fell silent. So there we are. Um, satire of meetings, Sam. Oh, very good. I enjoyed that very much, James. I like the way that the, the threat that it's minuted. <laughs> watch what you're doing. Um, my bit of history of meetings, like all good bits of history, I think you will agree, James, and everyone listening, begins with a coded letter. Of course it does. Mm. Um, this is a letter Love a bit of code. In the Iredell Jones papers are in the South Carolina's library at the University of South Carolina. And it contains... A, it's, it's a wonderful little thing. It's written in pencil. It's on a piece of paper uh, t- dated the 23rd of October 1868. And it's mostly, but not entirely, encrypted. So some fragments are legible and some are not. There's a series of symbols, 18 in total, mostly dots and dashes. And um, the, 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 the initial wording is, and he is anxious to have a copy of the blank, blank, blank in order to blank, blank, blank. So the rest of the letter takes this sort of form. You've got scattered phrases in English, but um, essential words are in a sort of code. And this is important and it's related to meetings, believe it or not, James, because of this. Idell Jones, he's the second son of a prosperous family in South Carolina. And he serves during the Confederate Army in the Confederate Army during the American Civil War. He becomes a state legislator in the 1880s. Um, and so during this period of, of reconstruction uh, in American history, this reconstruction after the American Civil War. 
And it, it's known for being a period in which attempts are made to redress the, uh, the, the problems associated with slavery and um, the political, social, economic legacy of slavery. And he is a member of the Ku Klux Klan. So he's a leading um, figure in the South Carolina world, because I said a state legislator later on. Um, and why this is important is that it's one of the only manuscript documents that survives that tells us anything about the internal workings of the Ku Klux Klan in this period. Um, it, it is an exceptional source. And the reason that matters, and it's related to meetings, of course, is it's to do with secret meetings and how you, as a historian, come to terms with, with studying something which is primarily, uh, function, primarily functions in a clandestine way. So there are other... Uh, uh, accounts and uh, sources of evidence relating to the Ku Klux Klan. There are pages of congressional testimonies, there are trial proceedings, there are all sorts of letters about the Klan to federal and state governments, there are diaries and letters written by victims and sympathisers, and, uh, and some by members, but really very few. And it's this important point, is that, is that so few of them are produced by the Klan while they are members. So a lot of them are talking about their lives later on, explaining what happened and why. But it's that crucial period um, in the 1860s when the Klan really comes into being, it becomes incredibly powerful, that we, we know very little about what was going on at all. And that's why this one is so, so important. Um, the Klan is originally organised. It's a social club um, set up by veterans of the Confederate Army and set up in Tennessee in 1866. Um, and it rapidly becomes a vehicle for Southern white resistance to uh, reconstruction, to, to, to repairing or trying to repair the wrongs caused by slavery. Uh, all over America, but particularly in the South. And that they dress in those very distinctive robes, um, they've got sheets, white sheets, um, used to, to scare those who are superstitious uh, as much as much as anything else. So what, how do you deal with this in terms of the Klan? Well, I, the point to realise is that the Klansmen really didn't write very much down. Um, so at these secret meetings, they're not keeping minutes. Um, most of the meetings we now believe occurred face to face between Klansmen. Um, some meetings did uh, result in, in documents, and among them uh, is, is, is this, this example of this letter. What's wonderful about this letter is we've actually managed to decipher it. There's a book um, by William Thomas Richardson, who wrote it in 1913, and it's called Historic Pulaski, the Birthplace of the Ku Klux Klan. And it includes stories about the Klan and also documents given to the author by a guy called R.J. Brunson. He's a person who claimed to have joined the Klan soon after its founding in 1866. And among his documents was a handwritten list of letters and symbols. So we know from this book, we've actually got the code used by the Klan in their secret correspondence. And it was the code that was actually used in this letter. So we can decipher the letter. Hillsborough, 8th of October, 23rd, 1868. Colonel Webb is a Ku Klux 
member. He's anxious to have a copy of the Constitution in order to organise a clan. I think you can safely send it by... Then there's a gap. If you are not willing to trust it that way, make Willie copy it in the Ku Klux alphabet and send it. Colonel Webb has the alphabet. Communicate with him about the matter anyhow. He's anxious to organise at once. Your brother, Johnston Jones, gives the address. So Johnston Jones, he is the author of the letter. He's the younger brother of Idel Jones, in whose papers this survives, who lives in Hillsborough, North Carolina. So this letter depicts the Klan in 1868, and it, it makes some things quite clear. Firstly, is that Klansmen are concerned about secrecy. Uh, from the very early on, just as soon as they first organising themselves into dens. They want a constitution to organise a clan. So that suggests that having something written down as a constitution, written orders, is very important to them. Um, the letter's also between two brothers, one in North Carolina and the other in South Carolina. So that suggests that the dens of the clan were organised by a clandestine network of southern elites who had pre-existing social connections. And that the letter was in a cipher that apparently originated with a different clan in Pulaski in Tennessee suggests that there's a network which has a broader connections running across South Carolina than, than many people suspected um, before the letter was first discovered. So there you are, James. It's just it's it's a really interesting example because it's it's you know opens a window on the administration of racism and evil in. Uh, in America in, in the 1860s. That's a broader topic, of course, the administration of evil. You can you can think about maybe the 1C conference of January 42, the implementation of the final solution by the Nazis uh, in the Second World War, and, and, and how secret meetings were actually conducted and how, and how those, uh, the minutes and the records of them were kept. It's also all obviously about the difficulty of uncover, uncovering those meetings, uncovering uh, what happened during those meetings. And it's not just about, obviously, the Ku Klux Klan or, or the Nazis and the uh, the final solution, but you might think about the Freemasons or other secret societies, uh, even Catholics in Tudor times or plotters like those who plotted the gunpowder plot. You've got the Illuminati, you've got German Templars, Zionist Cathars, all sorts of secret societies um, who went on to have very significant histories and significant impacts on history. So actually, this idea of how you you as a historian understand societies who are working in secret, who are not taking minutes is, um, is really quite a challenge. And it's something that historians need to come to grips with. Thank you, James. C certainly is. I love that, Sam, the sort of the, the sort of hidden meetings, secret underground yeah. meetings and how you reconstruct that. And also the sort of the, the opposite is true as well in that much of the history that we have written about decision-making and politics comes because of the keeping of detailed minutes to do with meetings. So you think about the cabinet meetings that happen in Downing Street when politicians get together and their discussions are recorded. So all of that sort of goes down into the history books and is kept by as a matter of law um, so that historians will be able to hold those politicians to count. Uh, to account in later generations. But I want to take us in a different direction um, with uh, with meetings. And I owe this to a really good friend of mine uh, and poet, Anthony Kalishu, um, who sent this to me a while back and and thought that it was uh, that it would be I'd, I'd enjoy it. And it's a CIA 
sabotage manual from the Second World War period. So it's dated 1944. And it comes from the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS, which is basically the the, the precursor to the CIA. Um, and the idea is behind this um, this pamphlet is that it is intended as a guidebook to citizens living in Axis nations who were sympathetic to the Allied powers. And it was basically a series of techniques for how they could subvert and mess things up within those societies, whether it be to weaken the country by reducing production in factories or to slow things up in offices or to interrupt transportation systems. And would you believe that meetings are really at the heart of it? Because what you do, if you mess around with meetings, you're able to... um, you're you're able to mess up productivity slow that down and also undermine the good working of, of things now this was declassified um Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com a while back and we've got uh the it's actually on the CIA's website now it was declassified in um in 2008 it's on the CIA's official website uh and it's titled simple sabotage field manual so go and have a, a google of that and you will get a facsimile of it a digitized facsimile of it um that shows you exactly what it was about. And I'm just going to read you, um, read you the the forward to it here. Um, it's dated for it's the Office of Strategic Services, Washington D.C., 17th of January, 1944. And it's this is penned by the director William J. Donovan, and he writes this simple sabotage field manual, Strategic Services Provisional is published for the information and guidance of all concerned and will be used as the basic doctrine for strategic services training for this subject. The contents of this manual should be carefully controlled and should not be allowed to come into unauthorised hands. The instructions may be placed in separate pamphlets or leaflets according to categories of operations, but should be distributed with care and not broadly. They should be used as a basis of radio broadcasts only for local and special cases and as directed by the theatre commander. And so it goes on. And the contents include not only an introduction, but possible effects, 
motivating the saboteur, tools, targets and timing, and specific suggestions for simple sabotage. And I'm going to cut to the chase here, um, because the there's a section uh, titled General Interference with organizations and productions. And I must admit, when I read some of this, um, it, it, it is quite funny, but sometimes it's a little sort of near to the knuckle. For those of you who work in businesses and get bogged down in a mire of meetings, uh, take note of this. So organizations and conferences. One, insist on doing everything through channels. Never permit shortcuts to be taken in order to expedite decisions. Number two, make speeches. Talk as frequently as possible and at great length. Illustrate your points by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experiences. Never hesitate to make a few appropriate patriotic comments. Number three, when possible, Refer all matters to committees, in other words, meetings, for further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committees as large as possible, never less than five. So those of you who've tried to deal with massive meetings uh, will know just how frustrating this is. And the inability to make decisions in a single meeting, but to bump it to another meeting where they will discuss it, that maybe in a couple of months' time really frustrates the getting done of anything. Number four, bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible. Number five, haggle over precise wordings of communications, minutes and resolutions. Number six, refer back to matters decided upon at the last meeting and attempt to reopen the question of the advisability of that decision. That's one of my favourites. You've made a decision, stick to it. Don't go back and revisit it. Number seven, Advocate caution. Be reasonable and urge your fellow conferees to be reasonable and avoid haste, which might result in embarrassments or difficulties later on. Number eight. Be worried about the propriety of any decision. Raise the question of whether such action, as is contemplated, lies within the jurisdiction of a group or whether it might conflict with the policy of some higher echelon. And then there's a subsection on how managers and supervisors should run things. Number one, demand written orders. Number two, misunderstand orders. Ask endless questions or engage in long correspondence about such orders. Quibble over them when you can. Number three, do everything possible to delay the delivery of orders. Even though parts of an order may be ready beforehand, don't deliver it until it is completely ready. Number four, don't order new working materials until your current stocks have been virtually exhausted so that the slightest delay in filing your order will mean a shutdown. Number five, order high quality materials which are hard to get. If you don't get them, argue about it. Warn that inferior materials will mean inferior work. And so it goes on. But this is one of my favourites. Um, number ten. Um, number nine, sorry. When training new workers, give incomplete or misleading instructions. Number 10, to lower morale and with it productivity, be pleasant and to inefficient workers, give them undeserved promotions, discriminate against efficient workers, complain unjustly about their work. And finally, number 11, 
hold conferences when there is more critical work to be done. So there we are. How to disrupt um, the Axis powers uh, through mismanagement of meetings and obfuscation of detail. <laughs> the CIA <laughs> manual there. Very good. I, I, I'd love to have been at the desk of the man writing that, thinking, wonder, wondering if, you know... Do you reckon he thought it would be there all those years later for us to be be um, enjoying his his advice on how to ruin meetings? Well, he probably he probably did, but it you know he, I mean you wouldn't know when it would be declassified. But yeah. I mean, you must know that if you're in that kind of position, that the decisions that you're that you make are going to be open to scrutiny by future generations of historians. Yeah, yeah, good. I was um, uh, looking at a little a little. Um, uh, Ladybird book I wrote on the Battle of the Nile, Nelson's Battle of the Nile, and that inspired me to think about meetings there. Um, Nelson's very famous for having his band of brothers, his um, fellow captains, who he invited to his his ship, and 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 was very careful to explain all of his tactical ideas to them. And I just wanted to go back a little bit to just think about what's going on here and to put this kind of idea of naval leadership having meetings at sea in some kind of context. Uh, I have to say that I've thoroughly enjoyed doing this because uh, I ended up having to read a chapter of my PhD, <laughs> which is great. And I, I wrote it when I was like 22 or something. Um, but it's, uh, it's one of my favourite, favourite chapters. I'm going to give you a little, a little bit of a, an, an inkling into this. So the need to have meetings, of course, is all to do with... Uh, the difficulty of communication at sea. There's a pretty obvious problem of signalling at sea, and that's the, the visibility. I mean, fog, mist, rain, hail, sleet, snow, and wind. Even sunlight can be a, can be a real pain. Um, it's very difficult to actually to make out the colours or patterns of a flag if you're looking up towards the sun. Up sun, it's called. Um, and for those of you who've you know spent time on the coast or out on boats, you know that a summer haze is also very difficult indeed, because it means you can. We find it very difficult to work out the colours of what you're looking at, even if it's at a very short distance, uh, and particularly when the sun goes down, so colours become incredibly difficult to identify. Um, when you're at sea and you're, you're signalling with flags, you also, of course, have to have, have uh, enough wind for there to be a flag, otherwise it just hangs limp and you can't work out at any kind of distance what flag is being shown. In fact, um, experiments, they worked out that you need the wind to fly at least three knots if the flag is even remotely wet for it to be able to fly, for you to be able to see it over a significant distance. One solution was to hang flags vertically, but that raised problems on its own. Um, Ideally, also, you've got to be at 90 degrees to the position in which the flag is flowing. You've got to be 90 degrees at the flag to be able to see it. Otherwise, you can't see the flag at all. And that's a real problem, of course, if the ships are in line ahead. They're in a, in a line one after another because you're having one ship behind the other. You're very rarely at 90 degrees to be able to see what on earth is going on with the flags. Um, the problems of visibility over distance were eased to a certain extent by signal repetition, using other ships to, to repeat the signals. Um, but it wasn't, surprisingly, wasn't actually um, dealt with too much. The, the, the real breakthrough came when um, the significance of a flag changed from where it was flown to its particular colour and shape on its own. And that meant that you could fly the flag wherever you 
uh, were able to, um, as, to make it more visible. And that made it much easier, of course, in battle. If, if say, say you've got a flag that makes, it means one thing, come to my assistance, say, if it's flown from the foremast, but then you lose your foremast. That means you can't uh, make those signals from an entire, like a, a section, a third maybe, as much as that, of your signal book becomes completely useless. Um, th- th- these are just a few of the problems of signalling. And of course, you can't isolate it from the body of ideas which they're trying to convey. Um, it was very simple in the 18th century in the Royal Navy. Um, you have a book of fighting instructions. That there's a, The instructions cover a large array of circumstances, but by no means are they conclusive. And each each idea has its own signal. The problem with this is that it's impossible to cover all eventualities. Um and that meant that there was a huge gap, uh, but that the, the the gap in in which would require a a commander to explain what he he meant by a signal didn't just exist and everyone was frustrated by it. They were very practical people and they solved it. A couple of fascinating quotes here. Um, one here from a captain who got in a bit of trouble. He claimed that he had no other instructions from the Admiral than the printed ones, suggesting that there, it was usual to have other instructions rather than just the the, uh, the printed ones. Another quote here, this man, he had no orders to cover uh, the ship that he was supposed to be covering, either by signal or otherwise. So there's a little suggestion that these people were expecting to get signals in ways that were not just via the signalling system. In fact, some of the earliest evidence we have of of this, it comes from the Black Book of the Admiralty, believe it or not, from 1338. It only really includes two instructions. One is to notify the presence of the enemy, and the other is to call the captains aboard the flagship. So an acceptance that communicating ideas from so long ago, um, and that one of the responses to that was actually to conduct meetings. And one of the most famous examples, a guy called Admiral Matthews in 1744, uh, he's court-martialed, he's found guilty. And one of the reasons he's found guilty is that he doesn't hold a council of war before the battle. And it was said that that at the time that was consistent with the constant practice of all admirals and commanders-in-chief. Nelson's very famous uh, for the way that he did communicate his ideas, therefore. But if you ever come across this concept of Nelson um, being the one who explained all of his ideas, you need to bear in mind two things. The first is that by no means was the only person who was doing this. In fact, officers were supposed to do it. And secondly, is that we, we know quite clearly that although Nelson did try and explain all of his ideas to his captains, that by no means did all of them understand what Nelson actually meant to happen. So yes, he was a genius as a leader, but it is actually quite a complex picture. And uh, meetings, I'll just leave it at that, meetings were crucial to the operational effectiveness of the 18th century Royal Navy, and it wasn't just Nelson. Sam, that was excellent. Excellent. I love a bit of uh, Admiral Lord Nelson. Absolutely superb. Um, So what I'm going to talk about now, very briefly at the end, uh, I'm going to bring us to the Tudors uh, and I'm going to bring us to the court of Elizabeth I and talk about the presence chamber, because this was a sort of semi-public room where Elizabeth would meet foreign ambassadors and, and courtiers. And it was distinct from the sort of more private sequence of rooms that we have, the privy privy chamber where she would withdraw with with sort of more intimate 
people, the heavily guarded rooms, this inner sanctum that her ladies-in-waiting women of the bedchamber would be there uh, looking after her. And the presence chamber is, you know, a central room for the ceremony of power. Uh, it's where there's a throne, a canopy, a cloth of chair and cloth of state on which the, the monarch would sit. And actually access to the monarch in this room was strictly policed. And it was only those people who were in political favour who could who could come to it. Um, if you think about uh, the courtiers who fell from favour uh, in Elizabeth's reign, people like Walter Raleigh or the Earl of Essex, um, they were denied access to, to the Queen. And this was one of the things that they constantly petition about, actually being able to come to see the Queen in person to plead their case. Now, exactly who was allowed to approach the throne and, and Elizabeth's presence, as I said, was strictly controlled. And there's one example um, in her reign where a gentleman usher of the chamber, Simon Bowyer, was ordered by the Queen to deny access to anyone without proper papers. And the Earl of Leicester, who's a very powerful uh, nobleman, um, gets really cross because one of his clients uh, is refused access. And he gets so cross with, with Bowyer about this. But the thing is, the Queen herself intervenes on behalf of Bowyer, backing him up, emphasising that she alone controls access to the presence of her as monarch when she's seated on the throne. And one of the best descriptions that we have of this kind of semi-public-private audience with the Queen comes from an ambassadorial dispatch dated the 8th of December 1597 and it's a, a, a dispatch, a letter back to France um, by the French ambassador André Rouleau um, and I'll just read you an extract of it. On the 8th of December I did not think to be given an audience for that day and was resolved to make my complaint but about one hour afternoon there came a gentleman from the Queen who said to me that Her Majesty was much grieved that she had not given me audience sooner and that she prayed me to come to her that very hour. He brought me in a coach to take me down to the river where one of the barges awaited me and we went thence to the gate of the Queen's palace. At our landing there came to seek me a gentleman who spoke very good Italian called Monsieur Wouton. Um, who told me that Her Majesty sent word that I should be very welcome and that she was awaiting me. He had four or five other gentlemen with him. As he led me along, he told me that the whole court was well satisfied to see me and that they knew well how greatly I loved their nation and that in Italy I had done all that I could for them. I told him that I was very sorry that I had not done more and that what had been done was by the command of the king who wished me in all that concerned the Queen of England to busy myself as much as in my own affairs. Now here's the real meat of it. He led me across a chamber of moderate size wherein were the guards of the Queen and thence into the presence chamber as they call it in which all present even though the Queen be absent remain uncovered. He then conducted me to a place on one side where there was a cushion made ready for me. I waited there some time and the Lord Chamberlain, who was, who had the charge of the Queen's household, came to seek me 
where I was seated, he led me along a passage somewhat dark into a chamber that they call the privy chamber, at the head of which was the queen seated in a low chair by herself and withdrawn from all the lords and ladies that were present, they being in one place and she in another. After I had made my reverence at the entry of the chamber, she rose and came five or six paces towards me, almost into the middle of the chamber. I kissed the fringe of her robe, and she embraced me with both hands. She looked at me kindly and began to excuse herself that she had not sooner given me audience. And he goes on to describe, um, this is one of the sort of famous accounts describing the Queen in older age, um, which I'm not going to go into here. Um, but the point is here that what we have is an intimate, intricate description of not only the presence chamber, but also the privy chamber and the meeting of ambassadors with the English Tudor Queen Elizabeth I. So there we are, Sam, royal meetings and ambassadors and the sort of the politics of space at court. Mm, I would have loved to have been in one of those meetings. I would have probably said the wrong thing at the wrong time. That's the, <laughs> then, what I, I do in meetings. Quite probably you would. <laughs> <laughs> uh, guys, thank you all very much for listening. I hope you've been enjoying this. We've got much more coming your way. Ladders and tongues, believe it or not, coming next. Um, do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell, and you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod. We are also all over social media. You can follow us on Instagram, and you can befriend us on Facebook. And you can also see everything that we have been up to on our website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. So check us out there as well. Yeah, we do. We have a Patreon page as well, patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected. Any support you can give us there be gratefully appreciated and it will go towards the production costs, allowing us to produce more material. And um, we're very, very grateful for those of you who support us in that way. Thanks a lot for now, guys. Bye bye. Take care, guys. See ya. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.